This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force, commercial and broadcast weather forecasting with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've provided weather support to Air Force One from Joint Base Andrews in Washington, D.C., and to Marine One from the Presidential Retreat at Camp David. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews around the world. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing military and commercial weather support to clients in all parts of the world. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when weather is a contributing factor to the crash. This is a two-part episode and you're listening to part one. Today's episode, when Eastern Airlines Flight 66 crashed moments before landing at JFK International Airport, is about a commercial airliner crash in 1975 that claimed the lives of 113 people, including all four members of the flight crew in the cockpit. There were 11 survivors. At the time of this crash, it was the deadliest in United States history. Some witnesses said the plane exploded in midair, but that was not the case. The crash occurred during thunderstorms while on final approach to John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. As the crow flies, this airport is just 10 or so miles from New York City. Despite the wreckage being scattered across a major highway, late on a Tuesday afternoon, just as the peak of New York City rush hour was commencing, there were no injuries or fatalities on the ground. Though not as well known as other aviation disasters, this crash set in motion a better understanding of the dangers of flying in or near thunderstorms and the push toward better technology, better communications between the flight crew and air traffic controllers, and the implementation of new equipment installed at airports and on airplanes that allowed the invisible and mysterious killer, today known as a microburst, to not only be clearly seen, but to send alerts to the controllers and the pilots so as to allow precious time for pilots to prepare for and avoid this potential killer. Eastern Airlines Flight 66 was an aviation disaster, but the crash, the lessons learned, and the technology that was developed following this crash are directly responsible for the aviation safety network that every one of us benefits from today. In the middle 1970s, thunderstorms were not very well understood. Even today, there are parts of the thunderstorm life cycle that are not fully understood, but prior to the early 1990s, the full capacity for damage to aircraft by thunderstorms was not only not understood, but there was a seeming oblivion to the danger, as pilots would almost fly at will through thunderstorms especially if planes on approach to a runway ahead of them had already done so without incident. When planes crashed during thunderstorms, the exact cause of the crash was a mystery. Sure, it was likely related to the thunderstorm, but what exactly or how exactly was unknown. Even in 1985, when Delta Flight 191 crashed in Texas during a thunderstorm, Newspaper headlines of the day declared that a mystery killer had downed the plane. That crash, by the way, has been noted as one of the most influential aviation disasters of all time, and it is the subject of Episode 3 of Radar Contact Lost. If you haven't already, please give that episode a listen. 
But this crash, 10 years prior to the Texas crash, identifies just how much we, we as meteorologists, we as pilots, and we as the general public just did not know about thunderstorms and the tremendous danger they presented to air traffic safety. One man did, however, have an idea. This man, Dr. Ted Fujita, had been researching thunderstorms and in particular tornado development for decades. But his ideas of updrafts and downdrafts and microbursts were generally dismissed by his colleagues. They were dismissed, that is, until this crash, when his thunderstorm theories and principles proved worthy of a second look by the previously dismissive collective of meteorology professors and aviation safety experts. In this episode, we'll take a look at Dr. Fujita, his work, his impact on aviation safety, and why, now that I've mentioned his name twice already, you're thinking, why does that name ring a bell? On Tuesday, June 24th, 1975, Eastern Airlines Flight 66 departed New Orleans bound for New York City. The departure weather out of New Orleans was typical. That is to say, it was summertime, so it was warm and humid, and it was nearing 1.30 in the afternoon, so a rain shower or a thunderstorm under these conditions would not be unusual, but there was nothing like that in the area. And even though the first tropical disturbance of the 1975 Atlantic hurricane season had developed the day before, it had formed near the Bahamas, so there were no tropical threats near New Orleans or anywhere else along this flight for this crew to consider. In fact, there were no reported difficulties for any phase of this flight, weather-related or otherwise. As Eastern 66 approached New York City, the air traffic controllers reported to all aircraft that JFK International Airport was experiencing, quote, very light rain showers and haze. Additionally, the visibility at JFK had been reported as zero. Zero. Zero visibility is a significant factor and will close an airport to all air traffic. Reporting zero visibility with light rain showers and haze is quite peculiar. Typically, a very light rain shower will not restrict visibility that much, four miles, maybe five miles. Add some haze and maybe the visibility is a little bit less than that. Haze on its own won't usually restrict visibility below a few miles. Haze is a dry particulate suspended in the atmosphere, as opposed to rain or fog, which is liquid or vapor. That said, sometimes a stagnant summertime high-pressure system will trap haze in the lower atmosphere, and as long as that high-pressure stays locked in place and the air mass doesn't move, the haze will generally get worse day after day as more pollution, like car exhaust, factory smoke, coal burning, etc., is added into the atmosphere. On days like that, visibility reported as 2 miles or 3 miles might not be unusual. Then, under extraordinary circumstances, I've seen it go even lower. New York City in the 1970s was a very polluted region, and they had had a number of air pollution crises in the 1950s and 60s. I grew up within sight of the New York City skyline and lived for much of my professional life in Houston, Texas. So, I've seen some nasty air quality. Still, zero visibility in a light rain shower with haze was too peculiar not to investigate. So, I looked up the historical weather data from JFK Airport on that day in 1975. I just had to know what was going on and how zero visibility was reported with just a rain shower and haze. 
Turns out, the official airport weather observation near the time of the crash was not zero miles, it was four miles. Four miles with thunderstorms and haze. For me, that discovery was good news and bad news. It was good news because four miles sounded much more reasonable given the conditions, and it was even more good news because it proved I still had a grasp, haha, on things that I learned decades ago. However, it was bad news because now I had to find out where the report of zero-mile visibility came from. Was it an error? Was it a rumor? Was it reported by somebody in a non-official capacity? As I sometimes do with odd or obscure research topics, as I knew this would be, I put it aside while I hoped I might stumble upon the answer later on as my research continued. And turns out that's what happened. At least I think I figured it out. While reading the cockpit voice recorder transcript, a pilot landing a few planes ahead of Eastern Flight 66, actually another Eastern Flight, Eastern Flight 902, reported that before landing, the visibility was nil over the marker. In the accident investigation report completed by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, this was the only report of zero visibility that I could find. Now, the pilot doesn't indicate which marker that visibility occurred over, there's the outer marker at about five and a half nautical miles from the threshold or the landing area of the runway. Five and a half miles is about 10 kilometers. And then there's the middle marker about one half mile from the threshold. And there's an inner marker also. But all he mentions is the altitude, 250 feet. In fact, he said, quote, the visibility at 200 feet is nil. At 250 feet above the ground, that may likely be the middle marker. But this all depends on what equipment is stalled for the runway, uh, the airplane, even the airline may have specific requirements for various altitudes during final approach. This is interesting because additional remarks by the captain of Eastern 902 indicated that they nearly crashed and then abandoned the landing. They applied full power or nearly full power according to the investigation report and then they performed a go-around, the process by which the pilot makes the decision to not continue the approach or the landing and then follows procedures to try another landing or divert to another airport and land there. Once the Eastern 902 pilot caught his breath, he reported to all the aircraft in the vicinity, and I'll note this was captured by the Eastern 66 cockpit voice recorder. The Eastern 902 pilot said, quote, We had a pretty good shear pulling us to the right and down, and visibility was nil, nil out over the marker. Correction, at 200 feet, it was nothing, unquote. The controller wanted confirmation of such dangerous conditions, so he asked the captain of 902, quote, Okay, the shear, you say pulled you right and down, to which the captain then replied, yeah, we were on course and down to about 250 feet. The airspeed dropped to about 10 knots below the bug and our rate of descent was up to 1,500 feet per minute. So we put takeoff power on and we went around at 100 feet. This is critical information for the controllers as well as to the other pilots in the area. The bug that the captain mentioned when he said below the bug that's a little tab that is attached to the outer ring of some of the instruments, in this case, the airspeed indicator. These tabs are adjustable and add a quick visual reference to help the crew identify critical values. Here, the bug was likely set to a minimum safe speed given the various flap settings. Clearly, this plane nearly crashed. 
Imagine descending at a rate of 1,500 feet per minute when you're 250 feet above the ground. The math says that's 250 feet of descent in 10 seconds. And since the plane was at 250 feet, that means a potential crash is just 10 seconds away. Other pilots should definitely factor this information into their approach and use it to help them determine if they should continue or to reject the approach. Instead, the captain of Eastern 66 scoffed at the report from his fellow Eastern pilot. He said to his co-pilot, quote, You know, this is asinine, unquote. Another crew member on 66 was heard to say, I wonder if they're covering for themselves. To me, this says the captain and the crew member did not believe the report from 902 and that the 902 captain was either making up the severe conditions to cover for perhaps poor airmanship, or maybe they were even inflating or exaggerating the conditions so that they could brag a little bit about what they had just overcome. Or maybe the captain's comment meant something else entirely. Maybe he meant it was asinine that the controllers were continuing to feed aircraft into these thunderstorms at the approach end of runway 22 left. We'll never know, but my gut thinks he thought Eastern 902 did not have it as bad as they said they did, which then helped the captain of Eastern 66 rationalize and have the confidence to continue his approach to runway 22 left. The controller in the final vector position then asked the captain of Eastern 66 if they heard Eastern 902's report. 66 replied, affirmative. At this time, 66 was about 10 miles from the landing threshold. In addition to Eastern 902, the one that had just performed the go-around, and Eastern 66, there were other planes in the immediate vicinity. There was Flying Tiger 161, a DC-8 that was almost nine minutes ahead of Eastern 66. Then there was Eastern 902. This plane was seven and a half minutes ahead. There was Finnair 105, another DC-8 that was six minutes and 45 seconds ahead. And then there was another plane just ahead of Eastern 66, a private, twin-engine, six-passenger Beechcraft Baron. Flying Tiger 161 had landed just prior to Eastern 902's aborted landing. At the time, this captain reported that the controllers should change runways due to the tremendous wind shear near the ground. But the controllers in the tower confirmed their readings. The wind was right down the runway. This then signified to the Flying Tiger captain and anybody else who was listening that the runway direction was fine just the way it was. The Flying Tiger captain was not happy and quickly replied, quote, I don't care what you're indicating. I'm just telling you that there's such a wind shear on that runway that you should change it, unquote. 30 seconds later, the controller then asked Eastern 902 if the wind was a problem for them too. 902 replied, affirmative. The Flying Tiger captain reported that while in precipitation on final at about 1,000 feet, the plane experienced, quote, severe changes of wind direction, turbulence, and downdrafts between the outer marker and the airport, unquote. He went on to say there were airspeed fluctuations of 15 to 30 knots, and then at about 300 feet, he had to apply nearly maximum thrust to arrest the plane's descent and maintain 140 knots. The plane began to drift to the left and he had to apply 25 to 30 degrees of heading correction to overcome the drift. He stated that he believed the conditions were so severe that he would not have been able to abandon the approach for a go-around even after applying near-maximum thrust because near-maximum thrust or maximum thrust could not overcome the wind condition. 
Since he couldn't climb, he believed his only option was to land. The NTSB later examined the flight data recorder of the Flying Tiger plane. It showed that while passing through 500 feet, the plane's speed decreased from 154 knots to 137 knots in 10 seconds. That's a decrease of about 20 miles per hour or 32 kilometers per hour. During the same 10 seconds, the data recorder also showed that the rate of descent increased from 750 feet per minute to 1,650 feet per minute, or 502 meters per minute. This is true OMG flying, and it took superior skill to keep the Flying Tiger's plane from crashing. And again, this happened just in front of Eastern 902, which itself almost crashed as it attempted to land. But 902 was able to successfully abandon the approach, opting instead for the go-around. Unlike the Flying Tiger's plane, 902 was fortunate in that it was able to climb away from the danger. The captain of 902 later estimated that they had descended all the way down to about 100 feet above the ground before the aircraft finally began to climb. The captains of both the planes immediately ahead of Eastern 66, the Finnair DC-8 and the six-passenger Baron, they both later stated that they also experienced significant airspeed losses and significant rates of descent. Fortunately, they heeded the warnings from the other pilots and were prepared for the conditions. They coped with the situation and they landed their planes safely. Now, behind Eastern 66, National Airlines Flight 1004 reported their position to be near the outer marker. Again, that's about five and a half miles from landing. The captain asked if everyone else was having, quote, a good ride through, unquote. The local controller replied that they, the tower, had only received reports of wind shear on final. That transmission was acknowledged by the National Airlines crew, but not acknowledged by Flight 66. The sound of the impact of Eastern 66 was captured by the cockpit voice recorder just a second or two later. Let's talk about the weather as this was integral to the crash. We've established that the weather conditions at the airport in the hours before the crash were not threatening. Then, in the minutes before the crash, the weather just north of the airport took a turn for the worse while the airport itself remained okay. Planes were landing, though struggling with wind shear, just before reaching the runway. Less than an hour before the crash, actually a severe thunderstorm was reported at the airport. But again, just 15 minutes before the crash, the official airport report was a light rain shower with haze. No thunderstorms were mentioned. The Eastern crew was aware of the deteriorating conditions, as the weather had been gradually getting worse for the past hour. At two minutes after four, about three minutes before the crash, the visibility at the airport was down to two miles with thunderstorms, rain showers, haze, and cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning. The wind was still from the southwest, and it was noted that there were thunderstorms overhead and moving northeast. Then six minutes after four, approximately one minute after the crash, the airport weather observation noted that there was a thunderstorm to the north moving northeast. This means that there were thunderstorms from near the flight path of the approaching aircraft to pretty close to, if not directly in the path of approaching aircraft. The wind at this time had switched to an easterly direction. This is a good indication of the wind shear near the ground. Remember, the previous wind direction had been reported to be from the southwest. So far, we've discussed the weather at the airport, the weather seen by the controllers in the tower, 
the air crews in the cockpit, and the official weather observations taken by the weather observer located near the control tower. But what was the National Weather Service doing at this time? At 3.26, almost 40 minutes before the crash, the New York City Weather Office issued a strong wind warning calling for gusty surface winds from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock that evening. The warning stated that the winds would be associated with thunderstorms. Located in Midtown Manhattan, the weather office is about 10 miles from JFK Airport. This report was distributed to the JFK control tower, but there is no indication it was disseminated to Eastern 66 or any of the other flight crews operating in the area. In times of rain or stormy weather, weather radar can be a lifesaver. However, when it comes to the JFK airport, the weather radar from the New York City Weather Office was mostly useless due to all the ground clutter surrounding the antenna, despite being located at the top of the 850-foot-tall RCA building, today better known as 30 Rockefeller Plaza. The tall buildings and bridges in the area would obscure or block the radar images of precipitation near the airport. As an example of this, the 925-foot-tall Chrysler building was almost directly in the path between the radar antenna atop 30 Rock and JFK International Airport. So the Chrysler building would block any weather echoes on the airport side of the building. I say useless, you might wonder why would they locate the radar antenna there? Well, yes, it would be useless for aviation purposes around the airport, but it was still quite good for other uses and in other directions. With a few exceptions, the radar was in a very useful location. However, given all the tall buildings around, there probably weren't many better places in the area. With that in mind, that being that the New York City radar was not ideal for Kennedy Airport, Kennedy Airport was provided weather data by the radar antenna located in Atlantic City, New Jersey, about 90 miles to the southwest. Though much farther away from Kennedy, 90 miles instead of 10 miles, the view to the airport from Atlantic City was unobstructed because most of the distance to the airport was coastal or over open water. And this is a good radar. 90 miles away from the airport is not a problem. Both the New York City radar and the Atlantic City radar were state-of-the-art for 1975. The post-war weather radar units that had been converted from World War II bombers were gone. The new WSR-57 radar units had been built from the ground up for weather detection, and they were in use across the country. These new radars were the primary workhorse for the National Weather Service until the late 1980s and early 1990s when NEXRAD Doppler radar replaced the aging 57s. Today, NEXRAD radar sites have replaced all the old WSR-57s. With much better resolution and range, there are fewer NEXRAD sites and there is better weather radar coverage across the whole country. Covering the New York City metro area today, including Kennedy, LaGuardia Airport, and Newark Airport, there are two NEXRAD sites. One is in Brookhaven, New York. That's located about the midway point on Long Island, about 50 miles from Kennedy. The other one is in New Jersey near Philadelphia and is about 60 miles from Kennedy. Both are providing much better coverage with few obstructions across the region. So back to the crash, eight minutes before the crash, the Atlantic City radar painted an area of thunderstorms along the northern edge of Kennedy Airport, more or less along Rockaway Boulevard. This area included thunderstorm tops that exceeded 50,000 feet or more than 15,000 meters. 
This is severe thunderstorm criteria, and 50,000 feet is a big thunderstorm. The radar also showed this area moving at about 35 knots. That's about 65 kilometers per hour, or just over 40 miles per hour. These cells are moving pretty fast, and it's yet another indication of the potential for severe weather. To make matters worse, this large group of thunderstorms was merging with a smaller group, another sure sign of continued intensification. As critical as all this information was, there was no evidence that any of it made it to the control tower at Kennedy or to the flight crews in the area. This is not surprising, unfortunately. In Episode 3 of Radar Contact Lost, I talked about the crash of a Delta Airlines L-1011 that was brought down in similar weather conditions in Texas. In that episode, I talked about the length of time it took, sometimes as much as 12 minutes or more, for radar information to go from the radar site to the National Weather Service office, to the airport, then to the air traffic controllers, and then to the cockpit. The Texas crash occurred in 1985, 10 years after this one. So I'm assuming information transmission was no better in 1975 than it was in 1985. What about the official National Weather Service forecast issued for the airport? This would be the TAF, T-A-F, or the Terminal Aerodrome Forecast. The original forecast, issued earlier in the day, called for thunderstorms beginning after 6 o'clock that evening. The forecast was later amended not once but twice to move up the start time and increase the intensity of the thunderstorms. When the crew departed New Orleans, they had the original forecast, the one that indicated thunderstorms and rain showers beginning after 6 p.m. local time. The amended forecasts were much better, especially the one issued just 20 minutes before the crash. But like the wind warnings and the radar reports, there is no indication that Eastern 66 received any of the amended or updated forecasts. There's one other source of weather information for the crew, and that's Eastern Airlines' own meteorology office. This group of professional meteorologists provide weather forecasts and updates to Eastern Airlines planes flying all over the world. And their New York forecast wasn't far off the mark. It did not indicate the potential for severe thunderstorms, but certainly moderate thunderstorms, and this, by definition, includes the possibility of low-level turbulence and wind shear, although very little damage is expected with moderate thunderstorms. The crew had this forecast in hand as they departed New Orleans. So, they were aware of the potential for thunderstorms, and perhaps they could have assumed an amended forecast would be likely, should they have checked with the Eastern Airlines Met Office as they approached New York. As the weather was deteriorating in the minutes before the crash, the crew of Eastern 66 checked the weather at their alternate airport, LaGuardia Airport, which was just 10 miles away on the north shore of Long Island. Kennedy is located on the south shore. Long Island, as islands go, is a big one. It's 120 miles or 193 kilometers in length, but it's narrow. It's about 23 miles wide at its widest, but only about 10 miles wide or so near Kennedy Airport. That's really not much of a buffer for weather. Bad weather at Kennedy could easily be affecting LaGuardia at or near the same time. All flight plans include an alternate airport for this exact reason. In case something goes wrong at the primary airport, the destination airport, the crew can pull the plug on the primary and proceed directly to the alternate. 
From a flight planning perspective, choosing LaGuardia as an alternate airport is easy to pick. It's nearby and it can handle the big airplanes like the 727, but it's not really the best option, especially if the weather is questionable. When considering the weather, a better alternate for JFK Airport might be Newark Liberty International Airport, located about 20 miles to the west, or even Albany International Airport, which is some 140 miles to the north. But remember, the original forecast in the hands of the Eastern crew when they departed New Orleans was that they were going to arrive in New York before the thunderstorm activity began. However, to pull the plug on JFK and go to LaGuardia is not that simple. For one, all the passengers would now be landing at LaGuardia instead of Kennedy. They'd miss connecting flights, or maybe they'd miss a pickup, or maybe they'd left their car at Kennedy where their trip originated. Amongst all this confusion, hopefully their baggage would get sorted out quickly. But it's not just the passengers, it's the crew and the plane as well. The plane might need fuel, so where it goes and when it lands are limited. Another consideration is the crew. There are strict limits on how many hours they can work, and going to the alternate airport might interfere with that. Given all the headaches diverting to the alternate airport will create, any aircrew will divert to the alternate airport only when there is no other option. And since the 66 crew checked the weather at their alternate airport of LaGuardia as they were preparing to land at Kennedy, I just had to see what they saw. And what they saw was the weather at LaGuardia was fine. No problems with the visibility or the ceiling or with the weather. Of course, as I mentioned, the two airports are only 10 miles apart, so fairly close. Thunderstorms just north of Kennedy aren't really that far away from LaGuardia, and it could be an issue for LaGuardia. Still, Eastern 66 could have gone to LaGuardia to escape the deteriorating conditions at Kennedy. In fact, as they were approaching Kennedy from the north or northeast, LaGuardia wasn't too far out of their way. They could probably see it as they approached Kennedy. Thunderstorms did eventually move into LaGuardia, according to the weather observations, but it was a couple of hours later. Deciding against LaGuardia, the crew was back to the problem at hand, getting the 727 on the ground at Kennedy. The air traffic controllers were providing vectors to the crew to help move around the thunderstorms. Then, about five minutes before the crash, the controllers reported a wind shift at the airport. Remember, Flying Tiger 161 was about nine minutes ahead of 66 and strongly suggested that the tower switch the direction of the runway due to the wind shear at the landing end of the runway. The runway direction was not changed and now Eastern 66 had a tailwind, making it even more difficult to land. Yet despite the worsening conditions, the thunderstorms, the sudden wind shift, and perhaps most telling, the communications from the air crews that had just landed ahead of them, both of those airplanes almost crashing, the crew of Eastern Flight 66 did not reject the approach. They continued with their landing checklists and procedures. At 4.05, Eastern Flight 66 flew into a thunderstorm and was struck by a microburst, a forceful and violent downward rush of air caused by downdrafts within the thunderstorm. What had been a headwind quickly became a tailwind, and the plane sank even more. The plane was pushed downward so hard and so fast the crew could not recover. Even if the three engines could quickly spool up to the maximum thrust, and they couldn't, but even if they could, there just wasn't enough power to overcome the wind from the thunderstorm. 
Eastern 66 first made contact with the landing light towers. These structures do not break easily, resulting in significant damage to the plane, including tearing off a section of wing and shredding the underside of the plane, ripping it open on contact and helping to compromise some of the interior safety structures, like the floor that held the seats in place. In fact, one of the findings by the investigation board after the crash was that the lighting structures were too hard and that they should break more easily to spare this type of damage to another plane. We'll talk more about the board findings in part two of this episode. Speaking of part two, this is probably a good place to take a break. I'm cutting this episode into two parts because, as with my previous two-parter about the 1985 Delta crash in Texas, this is a technical episode with a lot of meteorology, a lot of air traffic control, and a lot of piloting. So I think taking a break for you and for me is a good idea. Part two will be just as detailed, so I hope you find that good news. In part two, I'll discuss the air traffic control situation. The controllers were working really hard and they were in a tough situation in the hours leading up to this crash. We'll talk about the airplane, the B-727, and how it was prone to fatal accidents early in its career and what was done to end this problem. And believe it or not, I've even worked in a way to mention former United States President Donald Trump into part two. You may remember, he is a former owner of a 727, and not just one, but 17 of them. I'll also introduce you to Dr. Ted Fujita, known as Mr. Tornado, and how his research into this crash, as well as thunderstorms and tornadoes, reaches out to every one of us, and not just those who fly, but every one of us. We'll then close out part two with a look at the crash from the perspective of those in the cockpit, as well as the NTSB findings and probable cause of the crash. All of that, plus a couple of items that wouldn't quite fit into any of the other chapters of this episode. One of those things involves cows, and the other is about the weird way that allows crash fatalities to be officially counted as non-fatal injuries. Then, at the end of part two, I'll properly thank the radar contact loss team. I've had a lot of help from our air traffic controllers, meteorologists, and pilots, and that's the reason this podcast is as thorough and as detailed as it is. So, I'll save all of that for the end of part two. For now, I'll simply say, thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the radar contact loss team. Part two of this episode will be online soon. I'm Dave Gorham.